Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. Today, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by Dom Korik. Dom has been a friend of mine for a couple decades now. Dom, uh, I'm very jealous of him, I should say, because Dom is part of one of those super groups in neurosurgery in this country. When I think about a super group, I think about places like the Sims Murphy, the Indy Spine Group in Indianapolis, and of course, the CNSA, which is based in Charlotte, North Carolina. So Dom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, we could talk to you about so many different things, but I wanted to touch on a a topic that every neurosurgeon in training and then later on when they're younger puts through their head, which is this concept of private demics. In other words, there's private practices and there's academic institutions. And everybody says to themselves, wow, why don't we just take the best of both worlds and put them together? And uh, that recipe has obviously failed in many places, but in some places it seems to be working. And I know you guys used to be exclusively private, and now you're transitioning to a true academic model. Um, And I wanted to ask you about this journey, but before we go there, why don't you introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little about how you became a neurosurgeon and where you trained? Sure. So um, I grew up in Connecticut and moved to North Carolina for all my training. I went to Duke undergrad and then went to Wake Forest for med school and residency. Uh, And then uh, so I was in Wake Forest for 10 years from 88 to 98. Stayed on to came down to Charlotte at Carolina Neurosurgery and Client Associates in Charlotte from 1998 to the present. I'm a chief of neurosurgery at Carolina's Medical Center, kind of the flagship hospital of the Atrium Healthcare Network. Chief of Spine Division, Adrian Skeletal Institute as well, and uh, and I've had a great relationship with both private practice guys and academic guys, much like yourself, Mike, for, for like you said, these past 20 years. So, Dom, for our listeners, why don't you just give us a brief introduction of what your concept is of what a private practice really means, because it means different things to different people, versus something like a hospital employee or an academic practice, uh, just to draw the sort of lines of delineation. We know that there are very few pure models, but just so that some of our listeners, maybe they don't even live in America, they can understand how neurosurgery is, uh, care is delivered in America. Sure. So we, like you've stated already, we're a private practice group at heart. We, this group uh, was started in Charlotte by Bill Pitts in 1940. So we've been around for a long time. Uh, and Charlotte is kind of a unique situation because as of now, Charlotte is the largest the city in the United States of America without a medical school. So an academic center didn't build up around Charlotte, and yet, it's, yet it's the largest city in the Carolinas. So we've kind of grown up to fill that need, but specifically to answer your question, uh, because I know that with all the debates that have recently occurred and everything, the getting a straight answer is not the easiest thing in the world. But the straight answer is what I think is a private practice is a practice that you run your own show. Basically, we're a bunch of docs who are like-minded and we have a board and that board structure uh, it calls all the shots in terms of what we're part of or not part of. It makes all our decision-making process. Uh, and so 
whether we survive as a group and, and what partnerships look like and what ancillaries look like. That is all voted on by the doctors. So the, we're a private practice group because we're run by a bunch of doctors. Wow. You know, listening to you talk about the structure of your practice and, and thinking about this topic in general, it puts me in mind of a conversation I was present for a few years back at one of the spine section meetings, which was this very question. It was academics versus private versus private-demics. I think there was Jack Knightley for private, Alex Ricaro for private-demics, and Chris Shaffrey for pure academics. And it seemed like most of the conversation just came down to salaries and pictures of everyone's houses. And everyone did a good job. It was an informal kind of debate-structured conversation. Everyone did a good job talking about the pros of their own practice model and pointing out the cons of the others. Um, so maybe you could briefly lay out, if you could for us, what you think the, the greatest strengths of the privademics model is, but perhaps even tell us, in your opinion, as someone who's worked in, in multiple different practice arenas, what are some of the shortcomings? What are the, some of the things you would like to improve or change in the next few years of your own practice structure? Sure. Well, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to pick on that group of surgeons. You, you've got a veritable rogues <laughs> gallery of spine surgeons, as you just mentioned. So I don't know right. how much more I have to add to that, but I will kind of give you some of the plus and some of the minus as well. So I think the strengths that we talked about, you've got a bunch of like-minded physicians and you have the autonomy to kind of do what you please in terms of uh, the decisions you make, the way it impacts your salary structure and your partnerships and, and the way that you're able to practice medicine, that it's kind of on you. So that's a positive. Uh, and then the negative, I think it really comes down to herding cats is that we're up to about 42, 43 surgeons in our group right now. We also have about 15, 16 physiatrists. So we're pushing about 60 different docs and you know everyone is an owner. Now we have a structure where we have an executive board and we have a president, and we have various uh, chiefs of department who interact with the hospitals. So there's a lot of hands on deck, but the, at, the, at the end of the day, you really are talking about 60 docs who, who are owners and who have to get together and, and hash things out. So that's a double-edged sword. Neurosurgeons have a tendency to be a bit, little bit uh, aut autonomous-minded and, 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 dare I say, a little bit arrogant sometimes when it comes to them thinking they know what's best. So when you have 42 or 43 of them together, there can be a challenge there. So, Dom, you, you've made the transition now to having a residency program, right? So you have uh, – do you have a full complement yet? We have our full complement as of this past summer. Uh, our, our, last comp, uh, our last resident package uh, just gave us a full complement of seven, so we've got, a, we've got our full residency uh, program right now. Right. So basically, after you got approval, you had seven open spots and then you had to kind of backfill them. But you can't just grab people or PGY-7s that easily. Right. So you you filled it out slowly. Right. Um, right. We didn't backfill at all, actually, Mike. We just organically took one per year. We had seven. So we've had seven, uh, seven right now, seven years, seven uh, residents. And so we okay. didn't that backfill route at all. Great. Any regrets? None whatsoever. It's been a great experience, I think both sides uh, for the residents as well as for us. Uh, you know, we've felt like we have uh, a full kind of capacity neurosurgery group. We do somewhere around seven or 8,000 cases a year with our 42 or 43 surgeons for me to keep track. Uh, and and so the, and not everybody is part of the residency program, not part of the teaching. 
So you have the people who are, since it's a voluntary thing, are, are dedicated to it. And the residents have uh, an acute exposure to both inpatient, outpatient community and, and, uh, and a level one trauma center type exposure. So it's been a win-win situation. So tell me, tell me real quickly about like, so you do this and the, the concern to me always becomes that you're no longer really private. You get so big, you're bureaucratic and you have all the problems we have in the university, which is, you know, having to take compliance PowerPoints every day. And, oh my God, there's another sexual harassment or co- conflict of interest thing. Or, I mean, it's like constant, right? The legal aspects, like it's every day. Uh, and then I look at the private guys and the private guys are like, I'll never forget talking to private guys are like, yeah, you know, our practice, our goal is to not make too much money because we employ people to wash my car and drive my kids to school and they're all paid off the practice. And, you know, they, they, they have a lot of flexibility and I'm not suggesting anybody should do that. But and I know you guys don't do that, but like it seems to me like so many of the great things of practicing exist in the private world. And now you've got these residents and all that. It's great for now, but aren't you worried you're going to just get flooded with all the the uh, the infrastructure and bureaucracy issues that a- academia has? Well, there's I think there, if you're practicing medicine, you're, you're flooded with that infrastructure no matter what, one way or another, even in private practice. Having said that, like I said, we've got 40 plus surgeons and we have about 12 core faculty. So not everyone is necessarily involved with the PT. Also, we have a full complement of mid-levels as part of a private practice. So we don't really count on the residents to provide a service for us in, in terms of taking calls and things like that. Now, obviously they have to, uh, but, but our manpower was fully staffed 24-7, 364 basically with our mid-levels and we've got upwards of 25, 30 mid-levels. And so we, we roll the residents up into that structure. And so it, it, although it can help with call, our guys are typically dedicated to, to teaching and it, it, it is not any more overwhelming, I guess, than the overwhelming part of being involved with co-management deals with the hospitals, uh, you know, running, putting together, you know, call structures, call stipends, putting together, uh, uh, a residency program falls just in one category. We've got different ancillary programs like in the residency falls in that, but like we have a surgery center that's a 50-50 ownership of the hospital. We have imaging, we have physical therapy, physiatry. And so we have basically separate wings of the, of the practice and the residency is one of the academic wings. So it, it and, and so I think the differentiation is what you were talking about is we're not answerable to a dean, we're not answerable to a specific entity. Uh, obviously, we play by the rules of everything uh, with the hospitals and with the academics, uh, but it is not like we're beholden to anybody. And so we have some of the negatives, but I think we maintain a lot of the positives in terms of autonomy. Well, it's interesting that you uh, bring up the resident structure and the, the presence of residents at your practice, which is fairly new, it sounds like. Um, I'll, I'll point out that we're having this conversation on October 25th. Applications just went out for this year's cycle. And I'm sure um, you know by the time this uh, conversation goes live, people will be scheduling their interviews and preparing for them. So I wonder if you could, you know, me being the token resident in the room, if you could briefly make a case for your practice or if you could make, make a case for training at a private-demic institution for uh, medical students getting ready to gear up and, and pick their chosen programs in the match. Sure. 
Well, a couple of things. Mike mentioned some of the other programs that are similar, and I think our model is similar to the Indianapolis group, to Sims Murphy, and then also to uh, Barrow out in uh, Phoenix. So there is a similar kind of private demics model, number one. Number two, our, our residents kind of reflect what are what is important to us and so what's important to us is a big clinical training in other words if you know you want to come someplace to kind of split the atom and figure out cold fusion uh, basic sciences probably isn't fit for you uh, but if you're interested in a clinical training that covers basically every subspecialty of neurosurgery and does it with guys who are who talk about it not just write about it but kind of talk about it uh, and not just talk about it but actually do it um, and again, have this huge exposure to cases. And so uh, we've got to protect our residents from getting too much OR exposure because we've got, again, somewhere in the vicinity of several thousand cases, even just at our main hospital, never mind our outpatient center. Uh, and so it's very clinically oriented. Uh, so it reflects what we reflect. And it also reflects the, the business of medicine. If you're interested in uh, in being involved with clinical uh, uh, clinical research and outcomes research. We're kind of leaders in the field of that even before we were academic. And then obviously the, the business aspects of dealing with hospitals, dealing with healthcare, dealing with the government, et cetera. So I think that that's the kind of training you get when you go to a private demics place. Uh, and it's not to say it's better or worse than other places. It just fits you know, a certain personality. And that personality typically reflects the, you know, the kind of folks that we look for in our partnership. Now, Dom, you mentioned that you have a full complement of uh, APPs, PAs, nurse practitioners. It's very interesting because you guys never had residents before, right? So now that you have residents, has their role changed or do they just have this super cushy life where the, the APPs basically did all of that work and they just show up at the operating room? No, we don't. That's that's not a good experience. Uh, uh, suffice to say, I think there's enough coddling of residents <laughs> to begin with. I don't mean to sound like I'm 100 years old, uh, but back in the day, it was a little bit different, as I think you know, Mike. Uh, so having said that, even though we don't have a, a service requirement as part of our the functioning of our practice, it is important for residents to take call and to do those sorts of duties and understand what kind of scut work is about more or less. But having said that, we're not dependent on that. So it is a little bit different. And they do inter interact with our mid-levels. And But like I said, we have enough cases to go around and enough attendings to go around where it really ends up being a pretty nice mix. So looking forward, what do you think the future of not just your own practice, but the, the future of these hybrid or, or fused private ethics uh, models looks like? O obviously, it's a, a fairly new practice structure in the market, and many institutions who are just transitioning to it are still finding their feet. But in the coming decades, as things stabilize and things settle out, and you know we've talked about the pluses and minuses of the model, uh, wh where do you think this is going as, as a part of the field? Well, I, you know, as, as with everything else in the field, you're seeing uh, mergers and acquisition and consolidation. You're seeing hospital systems that are in the tens to, to almost hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, you see uh, consolidation from being able to be a kind of a mom and pop, even in neurosurgery becomes increasingly difficult. And so I think you're going to continue to see this consolidation, but I think you're going to see 
a niche carved out for, for folks who kind of want to be independent minded, but also want to be involved with academics and teaching and research. Kind of as an example of a brave new world is our hospital system that we mo work most closely with. So we're independent, we're a totally independent group, but we have relationships with various hospital systems. And the one that is kind of our, uh, our major relationship is with Atrium Healthcare. Atrium just uh, is basically a 14, $15 billion hospital system, somewhere in that range. They just took, they just merged with the Wake Forest University Baptist Medical uh, Training Medical Center so that's another four or five billion dollar hospital system that involves academics. So there's going to be a lot of interesting you know, discussions with me and, and with us as a private demics and our old, my old uh, mentors and, and training over at Wake Forest because we're all part of the same hospital system now. And as part of that, Charlotte is going to get a medical center, a medical school. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays. But I think you're going to continue to see this merger of private and academics. The academics model, I think, is can be difficult to sustain from a business perspective, and the private practice model becomes difficult to, to sustain just in a vacuum. So I'm gonna, I think you're going to see more of this kind of merger consolidation. Yeah, you've done an amazing job of, of doing that, right? I mean, you've basically um, been able to build out a system where you, you're the dominant player in one of the, one of the fastest growing American cities, right? Well, like I said, I think a lot of it was like most things in life was right place at the right time. But, uh, you know, Charlotte is is a is a large and growing city. Uh, it kind of boomed in the 90s and the early 2000s. Secretary of Banking has become diversified since then. The uh, medical uh, the medical environment and the entire milieu grew up around that banking and then uh, subsequent business boom. And that needed covered by someone and we filled that vacuum as a large private practice group. So it was the right place at the right time. Uh, and, you know, I'd like to think we did a couple of things right and we've, and we've built practice, I think, you know, along the lines of a way you would have to build an act, a private practice, and, and which is to say you have to, you're dedicated to, to the art of doing surgery. You're doing it more so than talking about it, proving you're doing well with outcomes and then also giving back in terms of teaching and clinical research. And so that's kind of been our philosophy. Wow. Well, Dr. Corbin, we want to respect your time. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast and describing your group's experience transitioning to a privademic model. Again, as I said, especially in this time of year with all the students hitting the interview trail and thinking about how to rank programs eventually for their match list, I think this is going to be very informative for them to, to get an inside scoop, not just on your own program, but on uh, different residency programs around the country that are uh, structured in this way. So again, thank you so much for, for your time coming on the show and sharing your experiences. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Stay safe.